Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. I'm, I'm already behind the eight ball um, time-wise. I'm a long-winded person because as I'll teach you this morning that um, you get what you get from your parents, and if you know my dad... There you have it. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. I couldn't make it any easier on you this morning. This is the first page of the Bible, so turn there with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback one around you. If you don't have one there, nudge up beside somebody and get close to them. And I want you to see what I'm saying this morning. And the reason I want you to see what I'm saying this morning is because I want you to see that I'm not making this up. It's not a political position that this is actually what the Bible teaches. That this is the way that we Christians should be informed. And so I think it's rather imperative, rather important from the beginning that you've got to put some lenses on this morning. And, and so I'm really working hard here. I want to tell you my heart's heavy this morning. Next Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. When Mike asked me to do this, I didn't know my wife had also planned a getaway this weekend. And not to spoil the surprise, she didn't want to tell me that. And so I graciously agreed to do that, or to, to preach. And then later on, my wife says, well, you've got to go out of town too. So that's where I was yesterday. It was a terrible trip, terrible trip. Uh, we're Tar Heel fans. We went up and watched them play basketball, and they got beat by 20-something. So a uh, waste of money. Uh, but the nature of this topic is very heavy. And so you have to have the right lenses on or it'll become, uh, I, don't, I don't want you to feel something you shouldn't feel or go in a direction you shouldn't go because I, I know you will. I've, I've lived long enough. I'm old. I'm 38. And so it's sanctity of life week. Some went and marched, I assume. The weight of this topic is heavy, folks. I think globally and nationally, racism and abortion are staggering and are related sins. They are staggering because of the scope and the depth of their assault on the image of God. You've already heard that term in Pastor Mike's prayer this morning. We were made in God's image. And so racism and abortion are driven by the treasonous notion that I am the most important thing in the world. I am sovereign. My skin color is better than yours, and so I get to treat you how I want to. This is not a baby. I get to do what I want to. And so before we look at the image of God in Scripture, I've got to give you some lens. And so here we go. I want you to see this lens in John chapter 8. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarize it. It's one of the, my favorite stories in Scripture. Jesus is teaching in the temple, maybe much like today. He's at church. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, there's this loud clamor in the back. And these men come running to the front. And they throw this half-naked woman down on the ground in front of him. And they say to Jesus, I think some of you know the story. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And my thinking is probably hopefully what you've thought. Where's the man? Biologically, we know it takes two to tango. 
You don't have adultery by yourself. You need someone else to be involved. But it's just the woman. And so if you're not a safety freak and you can close your eyes in church, just picture that for a moment. This mob of men come rushing through these doors. Some of you would be wigged out. And they throw her to the front. Partially nude. I envision her being battered probably some. Has anybody ever been beaten by a mob in here? I don't think they deal too gently with you. And so they throw her on and they each have their stone in their hand. They say the Mosaic law says she is to die. What do you say? And if you can just kind of get your head around that for just a moment. The law says we're to kill her. What do you say? And Jesus, according to the text, it's so strange. It's in the text, though. He bends down and he starts to write in the dirt. No one knows what he writes in the dirt. No one. So you can speculate, but it's, it's pointless. We won't know to heaven. But if you can think about all the natural shame that occurs when you rebel against all that's right and good and true, you think about the natural shame you've felt before when your parents have caught you doing something. Your public shame, your, your private shame has now been blown off and it's now public. And you're in front of a mob and Jesus being pressed for the second time says these words. You know, you know them. Let the one of you is without sin finish the sentence. We're well attuned in the Bible. And I love the detail of the Bible. The Bible says that from the oldest to the youngest they start dropping their stones And those of us that have lived long enough and we've sinned often, we know the longer you live, the more aware you are of your imperfections. Shouldn't have said that to my wife. Probably shouldn't have done that. Probably should have done that a little differently. And so for you teenagers, millennials in here this morning, you're the smartest people in the room. You really are. It only goes downhill from here. My daughter turned 13 yesterday. She is the smartest person in our home. She just hasn't decided to move out yet, but she's 13. She's the smartest. From oldest to youngest, they dropped their rocks, and the crowd went from rambunctious and violent and loud. Track with me just a minute, folks. It's all quiet now. You've seen people that have cried. I mean, really cried. What starts coming out of the nose when you start crying? You know, we got snot, we got tears, we got sorrow. And Jesus, the scripture says, he stands up and he looks her straight in the eyes and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I go and sin no more. This is the lens you've got to have on this morning. It's the lens of grace and truth. I've been pretty good most of my life growing up in a preacher's home. I don't mean pretty good as in behavior. I just mean I've been pretty good at knowing truth. I was under scripture memorization. I went to Sunday school. I've had a drug problem. I was drugged to church since I was little. I've been a big proponent of truth. I love the truth of God's word. What I have at times I have missed is the grace And so I want you to catch what Jesus says right there at the end. Woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I got the sin no more part, lady. Don't sin no more. That's the truth. But the grace is Jesus was down on his hands and knees with this woman, picking her chin up, tears and snot and everything. 
That's the grace side that sometimes in the church we miss. That's the kind of radical kindness I see in the life of Jesus. And so one of the things that's really powerful about this moment is Christ is not outside this moment judging the woman. Scripture says you already stand condemned this morning. You came into the womb condemned. Jesus enters into the shame with this lady. And so I wonder this morning if you could process that. What would it be like for the shame that some of you have in this room if you realize Christ is not here judging you here but picking your chin up and saying, come on. I want to sear into your imagination that Jesus picking up your chin and looking at you right in the face, exposing all of your sins, past and present and future. Does no one accuse you? Does no one condemn you? Neither did I. And so that's the lens. Are you with me this morning? That's not even the message. My kinfolk in the back, he'd probably like for me to quit right now. We're pretty much done. Because you could take that message and run with it. But I'm about to talk about life and what being made in the image of God is all about and the implications of that. And so I've got to say some sensitive, hard things this morning. Why? I mean, why are you kind of trying to sugarcoat the truth? I'm not sugarcoating any truth. The point is, I've lied before. I've lied to my mom. I'll never forget that day. She's here. I lied to her. That lie does not haunt me. Never. I've never woke up one morning worried about that lie. It's under the blood. I could care less now. So there are some sins that haunt us. They weigh heavy on us. They push on us. They squeeze us. They affect our relationships. Are you tracking with me? There's some sins that really affect us long term. And so what I've got to say this morning, you've got to have the framework of Christ picking your chin up and saying, no condemnation. It's sin, but no condemnation come. And so... Hear me this morning in this sentence. There is no sin, not one, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Not a one. There is no sin that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, do we believe that? Do we believe that a murderer off the street could walk in here? A hellion, a pagan, uh, and someone who cannot stand God could walk through these doors and sit down here and go, there's not anything you've done that is more weighty than the cross of the Jesus Christ. And so pick your Bibles up this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. We're going to talk about life, how it began. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the sea, and the birds, the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Smootses aren't here this morning. They're traveling. They're in Canada, I think. I was going to make a joke about him. They're, They're pretty fruitful. Some of you have been more fruitful than others. The point of it is, there's something unique going on in that passage. Up to this point, it's been let there there be light and there's light. Let there be an expanse and there's an expanse. Let the waters be gathered and there's waters together. There's a break in what's happening here. And so what's happening here, Trinity, is that you get to see the Trinity 
in action. For the first time, we're introduced to the triune nature of God. Let us make man in our image so that human beings alone have been made in the image of God and therefore are different than and are more valuable than anything else in this world. Let me say that again. You sitting there today are more valuable than anything else in this world. And, and some of you wives are going, I know, my husband tells me that every day. You are, you're more valuable than anything in the world. And the best way to understand that is kind of a threefold relationship. Let me break real quickly our relationship to other animals, our relationship to God, and our relationship to humans. I'm going to move quickly through these. Let's just talk about animals. Rhonda and I got married 16 years ago. We didn't have pets. We're not pet people. I figured why spend money on them when I can feed myself with that money. We held out for a long time, but somewhere over the last two weeks, something's gone wrong in my home. My wife got a wild idea that we should have a dog. I think my daughter, 13, smartest girl in the world, talked us into it. And so what I find myself on New Year's Day is driving to North Carolina to buy a dog. I mean, we paid for a dog. I didn't even know people did that. I thought you just picked them up somewhere. I spent money on this dog. How many of you have a dog in this room? How many of you have cats? Never mind, I don't care. Um, I can't stand cats. How many of you have horses? How many of you have pigs? Hamsters? Gerbils, yeah. Here's what I'm saying. How many of you would raise your hand and go, I believe my dog is really smart? You have a dog? Raise your hand if you think they're really smart. I mean, I was talking to a lady this week who the dog comes in, he raises his hind legs up, they wipe him off, raise the front paws up, and they wipe him off. If she's not there to do that, there's a rag there, and he does it himself. I mean, dogs are really, really smart. I think we all agree with that. And here's something I've noticed. We are not equal to the rest of the creative order. As smart as you think your dog is, that dog does not have a moral, intellectual, spiritual compass that the rest of creation like us has. I mean, like we have. Dogs don't possess that. That doesn't give us the right to be brutal or cruel, but it is man alone that's been given dominion over the animals. You, you've thought this, right? We're not the fastest people in the world, right? I don't, the fastest animal, I guess, when I was in third grade was a cheetah. I don't know if that's still true. We're not the strongest, but clearly we have dominion over the animals. That was in that passage. That's the edict given to the man and woman. Back in the garden. Secondly, our relationship to God. That's called the image of God. Again, let's flesh this out real quick. We wrestle with some things that animals do not wrestle with. We walk in some things that animals don't worry about. Some of you woke up in the middle of the night last night with some regret, I bet. Some of you woke up with some struggles, some issues you're having, not just your back hurts, but you've made some decisions that haven't gone too well. I've just never picked up my little shizu who's called Duncan because my wife likes to go to Dunkin' Donuts four times a week. I've never picked him up and thought, man, he's really thinking about eternity right now. I don't ever see a dog gathering up with other dogs and going, these people are about to get rid of us. We probably ought to start planning how this is going to go down. There's no estate planning in animals. What do they do with sin and shame? I, I, I know some of you are like, my dog does feel shame. I walk in and go, now, Roscoe, did you do that? And he drops his head and covers his eyes. 
That's not shame, that's fear. Those are different things. I will whip your tail and my soul is wicked are two different things. We all agree? Human beings seek after God. They seek to understand eternity. Animals don't. They don't. God does not seek them. They do not seek God. Humankind alone carries the joy and burden of that. Lastly, there's the human-to-human thing. Let, just, let's, let's go here. How many of you have ever watched National Geographic? You, you've seen the animals that you're watching, and there's this little three-year-old antelope, you know, stumbling around. You're like, oh, that's just the cutest thing in the world. I mean, that's just so cute. And then here comes what? Lions, usually what we go with. Here comes this big mama lion, and she devours this joker. There ain't a single one of y'all called 911 and said, get the SWAT team down there. There's something going on. That lion just took out an animal. None of y'all do that. Why? It's nature. It's what we expect. Now try that when you leave here. Pull into your subdivision. Call all the men in the neighborhood and say, I'm going to fight you for this neighborhood. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You, you, somebody, you're going, to, you're going to jail, bro. You're going to jail. You know, there's no moral quandary in the lion. She's not going, as she's licking the blood off her paws. She's doing this, getting some intestines. I'll get some dental stuff in here now. She's getting some intestines out of her teeth. I shouldn't have done that. I just shouldn't have done that. The lion doesn't think that. The lion's thinking, man, this is good. She's driven by instinct. She cares nothing about her future. She's a lion and she's magnificent. Punch me in the throat in the parking lot, and I guarantee somebody's going to jail. Right? Do we all agree with that? So there's a relationship difference between us and animals, us and God, and just even amongst us here. There's a spiritual component. We lie in bed with regrets. We wrestle inside of ourselves. The animal kingdom doesn't wrestle with that. So here's some questions I want to answer this morning. I've got to move quickly. I've preached this sermon now about three times in three days, and I cannot shave any minutes off of it. Even my six-year-old this morning heard me, and I could not get any minutes off of it. I'm wasting time saying that. The first question is, when does this moral, spiritual compass enter into the man or woman? That's a huge question. Pastor Mike read Psalm 139, verse 13. Listen to the word of the Lord. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I love this passage. This has all sorts of implications for us believers in this room. And it can radically change your life if you're a non-believer in this room. Fearfully and wonderfully made. The weight of this text, it's not just God did it. It's actually in your mom's womb. He's building you. He's knitting you together. This moral, spiritual component that we alone possess is happening. Now, I'm a biology major from Southern Westland. We know how babies, it doesn't take a biology major to know how babies are made. We don't think you're going to take an ultrasound and see the Holy Spirit kind of you know, knitting everything. That doesn't go on. We know that God is accomplishing his purposes through the biological mechanisms that he set in place. And so the Bible says that your personality, your personal stature, your physical stature are woven together in your mom's womb. 
for the days that he had for you. Let's just go with this illustration. Close your eyes a minute and think about you. Like, like, did you ever think you'd be doing what you're doing maybe right now? Like, is there something that God was like just putting an extra little bit of this and an extra little bit of that and an extra little bit of that inside the womb when he made you? Like, I mean, I look at my life and go, man, I'm loud. I'm loud all the time. And then I see my kids. I can't get them to shut up. They talk, jabber. Our family, our home is loud. I was loud when I was little. I argued when I was little. I loved to teach when I, I'd walk around at five years old preaching when I was little. Does that have anything to do with proclaiming the gospel? Maybe. God's involvement in the womb. Biology, yes. Dominant genes, yes. Recessive genes, yes. Mama's origin, yes. Daddy's origin, yes. But the spiritual reality behind all that is it's God's plan for God's glory in our lives. That's the image of God. Psalm 58.3 says this, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. That's a strange text this morning. Hang in there with me. Why am I bringing up wickedness right now? Well, I'll tell you. Because the Bible says wickedness is a moral, spiritual state of being. And where did he say it started? In the womb. So wickedness isn't something that morally occurs in our hearts after we're born, but that moral, spiritual thing that exists in mankind that sets us apart from all of creation, your dogs included, is there in the womb. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a, bring a clean thing? Out of an unclean, none. Let's, let's unpack this just a minute. Anybody sitting beside their mom or dad right now, don't raise your hand, but just look beside, look at your mom next door to you and say, you're a sinner. Look at your dad next door and say, you're a sinner. And therefore, that makes me a sinner. This isn't math. A negative and a negative equals a positive in math. That's not how it works in spiritual things. If your dad's a sinner and your mom's a sinner, then guess what? You're a sinner. Job's point is how can two unclean things produce something that's clean? Doesn't happen. You were unclean in your mama's womb. Now, the next question is the biggest one. I mean, this has implications for a hundred different things that go on in our lives every single day. The question now becomes when in the womb, are you tracking with me? God says, You're made in my image, you're special in the womb, but when in the womb does the soul become present? When does life begin? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us blind. Psalm 51.5. Listen carefully to Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're just listening to the Bible, folks. Let me answer the question according to the Word of God about when the soul comes into human cellular matter. Are you ready? Are you ready so you can tell your kids and your grandkids and you can shut off culture, you can shut off what news says, and shut off what textbooks in our public school system say? Now, it says at conception is when life begins. Not after the first trimester, not after the second. A human being is born soul intact when a sperm egg unite and we have a living human being. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. At conception, the moral, spiritual component of my humanness was present, and that spiritual, moral thing, my humanness, my essence in the womb, was bent away from God, not toward God. Let, let's just have a moment here of catharsis here. Let's just do this. You, you, who has children? Who has had children? Raise your hand. How many of you sat them down and said, I'm going to teach you how to be rude? I'm going to teach you how to throw a temper tantrum. How many of your children ever, when you, just something so simple as, you're in the dollar store, 
and you're like, you, you, Silas, you, you can't have that toy. And you would have thought I'd have looked at him and said, get out of the house. I mean, he's screaming his head off. Why can't I have a toy? And then he throws himself down. Who in here of their kids have ever laid down on the floor and thrown a temper tantrum? There's some hands right there. Not in my notes, but have you ever got down in the floor with them and thrown the temper tantrum? I've heard that's a very good parental tactic to do. It will straighten them out real quick. They'll be more embarrassed than you are. You don't have to teach children how to do this. Silas, don't hit your brother with the remote control. Ah, I can't believe you told me to do that. They go crazy. Where did they get that? David said it's here in mom from the moment of conception. Everything I've said up to this point is the word of God. A little bit of science here. I looked over about 10 secular textbooks last night, actually, or the night before in the hotel room. Every one of the embryology and genetic textbooks I could find that are on the list of the readings for Planned Parenthood, every single one of the textbooks said that life begins at conception. Every single one of the secular textbooks said that life begins at conception. With that, we've got to consider how we Christians are to live about the day and time we live in. First, we should marvel at everything I've just said. You are fearfully and wonderfully, you are special. That's not just because your husband tells you that once a week. You are special, women and men. Second, as believers in Christ, we should put a high, high, I can't give you enough high values on human life, all human life. Let me throw this in. From the womb to the tomb. Disabilities, special needs. Don't tell me you're for human life in here and you're not for human life out here. Listen, friend, this isn't political. This might be fought at times in the political arena, but I can assure you this is not a political issue. This is a biblical, ethical, spiritual issue that to our shame, few of us have been moved by. What we know is this. One million, keep your lens on grace and truth. What we know is this, one million little boys and girls every year are sucked limb from limb from their mother's womb. At least one. Some states don't have to report it. And only what we can rightly call murder. One million. Roughly 3,000 a day. In one year, more kids will be gone than every soldier that has ever died in every war we've ever fought. That'll get you fired up. You love the military? So do I. More babies in one year than every soldier that's ever died. And what's scary is we see this going back to not just our times. 73, Roe versus Wade. We see the people of God in the Old Testament. Flip with me to Psalm 106. If you have your Bible, I'm going to go quickly. It's a long Psalms. Psalm 106 just walks through basically... What the Israelites did, it's horrific. If you've never read through the Bible, you've probably never read this. So here's the list of Israel's rebellion and failures. Listen to this. Verse 7, they rebelled by the sea. Verse 14, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Verse 16, they were jealous of Moses and Aaron. Verse 19, they made a calf. You know. 
Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land. Verse 28, they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. 32, they angered God at the waters of Meribah. 34, they did not destroy the peoples that God told them to. 36, they served idols. 37, are you with me? Listen to what it says. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. Rebellion, craving, jealousy, unbelief, murmuring, serving their, God, serving their idols and sacrificing their children. The list could have gone on and on. But I believe that it stopped there perhaps because human beings would feel that this was the bottom of the downward spiral of dethroning God and dehumanizing man. They killed their children. They sac Verse 37 says they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. That's in the Bible? Four things from this real quick. Just four things that make the case for what I'm making this morning. They were sacrificing their children. Not oxen and sheep. These were little girls and little boys. They were pouring out their blood. And I probably believe probably in a more humane way than we do it today. They probably just slit their throat and it was over and done. Something horrible had happened to the Israelites' hearts. Second, this is called innocent blood. It doesn't mean children are innocent. We know they're not, right? We've already taught that. Wickedness is in here. What it means is that in their relationships among people, they committed no crime worthy of death. They are innocent. Only God can take life. And he can take our kids' lives. Some of you have probably tasted that. But humans may not take the life of an infant. It is innocent. God has forbidden us from taking innocent life. The sixth commandment. Third, when we sacrifice their children to pagan idols, they are sacrificing the demons. You can go, well, that's a weird word. It flips back and forth between demons and idols. This is all I want to say to that. In other words, whatever system the world comes up with that obscures God and contradicts his word and destroys the image of God, behind that system are demons. Their ultimate goal is the degradation of God and the destruction of his people. Demons are willing to send millions of babies to heaven if they could make millions of murderers on earth, especially moms and dads. Sons and daughters, innocent blood, sacrificed to demons. Why do I say all that? The parallels to abortion are pervasive. These children in the wombs of the people in this room and the lady you meet this tomorrow at Walmart who's pregnant. Don't ever ask a woman if she's pregnant. Learn that. That is a little boy or a little girl. They are innocent of any crime deserving death. And their blood is being poured out in the most gruesome procedures of dismemberment. And we can be sure that the demonic forces behind the abortion industry are there. And they are happy for every dead baby and every guilt-ridden mother that's walking this planet. That's the downside to Psalm 106. It goes on to really pick it up and say God saves them. That's not where we're going. I've got to wrap it up. I've got to bring this plane to a landing or a crash or something. I want to move to science real quickly. When Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, there was no sonogram, no 3D sonogram. 
there was no ability to watch our babies smile at us before they're born. By eight weeks, that's not even the first trimester, your wife's still throwing up. At eight weeks, babies suck their thumbs. They respond to sound. There's evidence building that they're dreaming. And here's a crazy one. Stick a needle up in there and guess what happens to their feet? They recall, they pull away. In fact, there's even legislation that's been passed. What would happen today if I was driving my family home and texting and driving and there was this young gal in front of me, I don't know all this, but she's carrying a baby and she's headed to a Planned Parenthood. And I hit her, bruised her a little bit, but I killed the one inside of her. Guess what happens to me? Involuntary manslaughter. You see how twisted that is? Even society on this occasion says it's a person in there. So when you want them, it's a person. When you don't want them, it's okay. That's demonic. It's broken. When sea turtles are sacred and babies in the womb are not, humanity's gone dark. Here's what happens. I know the arguments. What, what, what about? I, I, I was raised in a home where I, I know Westland theology. What, what about incest? What about horrific rape scenarios? You don't know how many percentage that is? Half of 1%. So don't give me those arguments. That's not the majority. It's not, I mean, it's not even anything except to those girls that it happens to. It's everything. Statistically speaking, the majority of abortions are not taking place because of the woman's life being in danger or because of rape. It's purely around convenience. I don't want to do it. I'm not ready for this. I didn't ask for this. I've got a career. I've got a job. I've got a dream. My parents said I've got to go to Clemson. It's murder for the sake of convenience. And lastly, the argument with my unbelieving friends that I have and some believing friends who aren't there yet in their worldview. What about the woman? It's her body. What about the woman? It's her body. Respectfully, listen carefully. It's not your body. At the moment of conception, according to the Bible, a soul is in place. And on top of that, science says a completely unique strand of DNA is birthed out of nowhere. That's not your heart in there. That's not your kidneys flushing fluid. And listen, we have laws. Can you do anything with your body? Go out there and try to prostitute yourself today and see what happens. You get arrested for that. This is demonic blindness in our day and age. It has us acting like crazy people. So let's take a breather, just a minute. How do we get down in the dust and pick up chins? How do we have truth that I've preached this morning, but how do we get down in the dust and see the tears and the fear and shame and pick up faces and say, let me show you in whom there's no condemnation? How do we do that, church? How do you do that? How do you, how do you say murder, murder? One of the things I love about the Word of God, it pulls from the fringes of darkness, his brightest lights. Saul was a murderer. Moses, murderer. David, murderer. Look at me this morning. Women, there is no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ, not even the one we're talking about today. If it had more power than the cross, we wouldn't still be talking about it. That cannot define you. Christ's forgiveness will define you. So, so let's do this. 
I, I don't know how much longer Roe versus Wade will stand. I, I don't know. God has almost always accomplished social change through the outcry of his people who are against the world for the sake of the world. I just don't want to be on the wrong side of it. I'm sure my ancestors were on the wrong side of racism. Are, are we, are, am I talking to the South? I don't want to be on the wrong side of this issue. And so I want to give you four ways to engage culture. Briefly, five minutes, four ways to engage in culture. How you'd respond to a message like this. First, if you're guilty, own it. Own it in repentance, knowing that you will be met with the kindness of Jesus who will pick your face up. If you're a woman here this morning, own it. Own it. There may be women among us who've had abortions who have never said anything to anyone and have carried the weight of that shame forever. It's not one of those things where you just walk and knock on the boss's door and say, I got something to tell you this morning. That doesn't happen. It's manifested itself in how it's twisted their relationships and manifest how it, all sorts of ways. So here's my encouragement to you sisters in the room. Don't carry the weight of this anymore. You don't have to. There's a body that will walk alongside you. It's called the church. That's why God gave it. So he could be walking amongst people and picking their faces up. Brothers in the room, have you ever pushed someone to have one? Grandparents, have you ever encouraged someone? Maybe you probably should. Look at your circumstances. You ain't got no money. Did you fund it? Did you force it? You own that before the mercy of God. That's the first thing, own and repent. For all of us in the room who's not had an abortion, repent. You've been indifferent to it probably. Yeah, abortion ends life, so what? I'm not doing it. That's my stand. I don't care what other people do. That's indifferent. We just haven't cared, haven't done anything about it. Number two, the second thing you've got to do is pray. It is clearly obvious this is no longer rational. This isn't rational anymore. We're dealing with a seared conscience and the arguments are no longer rational. All 50 states have laws protecting animals from human beings. I kill that puppy today, shoot it with a gun when I get home, and one of y'all find out about it, guess what? Ain't going to end well for me. And then you got the laws about, you know, killing the mom or killing the baby on the way to the abortion clinic. You've got to pray. I drove by Planned Parenthood yesterday just out of the blue. That was not part of my trip up there. But as I drove by Duke University, there's a Planned Parenthood there, and I'm driving with my wife and kids and my 13-year-old who I was able to have a conversation with about this. Drove right by the Planned Parenthood. We prayed, I prayed for that Planned Parenthood. And so we had a conversation with our 13-year-old about, you know, why is it so close to the university? Take your guess. You better get to praying. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's what you've got to be doing. The third thing, it should inform how you vote. I'm not talking party. It's got to inform how you vote. I'm saying that we can't afford for this issue not to bear weight on how we vote anymore. 73, since 73, 54 million babies have been murdered somewhere. We repent, we pray, we pay attention to government structures. And here's the last one. Here's the last one. Are you ready? 
you've got to get off the sidelines and get involved. What does that mean? What does this mean that I've got to get involved? One way, pregnancy and advocate centers all around America. Easley's got one. I've taught you how to spiritually participate. Pray, pray, pray. Physically, you've got to get involved. You want to love the way that Jesus loves? You cannot just shake your fist at darkness and say truth without helping in one way or another. You can be pro-unborn and still don't want to reach out your hand and help the pregnant 16-year-old. That's not compatible with the gospel. That's not. So in the end, we've got to get involved. To call abortion murders, calling it what it is, that's truth, but it does not fix any problems. The church and the people of the church must become a beacon of hope and light for women in difficult circumstances. That's what it means to be the people of God. We're not just pro-unborn babies. We're pro-15, 16, 18, 22-year-olds stuck in poverty, abused by parents, train wreck situations. doesn't have to end the murder of an innocent baby. The church can come alongside. Blow a wall out in your home. Build an extra room. That's what it means to grow in your capacity to love like Jesus. Give up your life, your time, your money. Go to Hope Women's Clinic in Easley. What a gift of God's grace. There's a company out there that takes nice Mercedes-Benz vans called Save the Storks. They put an ultrasound in it and they pull up in abortion clinics or on the side of them. And women that are coming there get a chance to go in and see their little one. Don't have Starbucks for the next year and send your money to them so they can put another bus on the road. Four out of five women that go into a stork bus save their child. Look into adoption. My home included. I'm preaching to me this morning. Look to foster kids. Take care of families that do foster. Pay for their house to be clean. Pay for them to have a meal out. You take care of the kids. That's what Christian hospitality looks like. We cannot just cross our fingers and hope while another million babies are murdered. May it not be on our watch. We must pick up chins and look into tear-filled eyes and say there's no condemnation here. If you're a guest this morning, I think Mike would probably appreciate this. This is not how we preach every Sunday. Not every issue is this weighty, I assume. But I don't want you to be afraid of the day in which we live. This has nothing to do with politics. This has everything to do with the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The responsibility falls on us, church. And the Bible clearly says our call is to the least of these. And who is more than the least of those unborn? There is no genocide. Listen to me. I know it's late. And I've been a Sunday school teacher before, so I'm sorry. There is no genocide, war, ethnic group out there who's been more oppressed or suffered more or unjustly slaughtered more than the unborn. That is God's call on our lives, not to stare at a wall and go, well, I just didn't have one. We are called to be clothed in compassion, saturated in love, picking up chins, inviting them into our home, emptying our wallets out, 
coming up to that 15-year-old whose grandparents have said, we don't do that in this house. She's done it. It's over. You come up alongside her and say, I love you. God loves you. And together we can do this. That is the call upon the church. Not just Trinity, that's the call upon the church. I know this was a weighty message. And so I just pray now that God would be glorified over his rightful place in the womb. He owns this, this. I'd like for you to stand with me this this morning as we close in prayer. So that's the four ways for you to think about this. Repent. I mean, some of you have not even thought about abortion in 17 years, 25 years. You see little poor moms walking at Walmart, and you're like, yeah, look at them kids. She should have stopped a long time ago. That's pro-life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I pray specifically in this moment for any sister in this room who has carried for a long time the guilt and shame. They've had it running through their minds on repeat that they're wicked, that they're unforgivable, that they're unlovable. And that there's no space for them in the kingdom. But as John 8 clearly shows, Jesus says there's space, there's room. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would in this moment bring peace to that wound. That you would heal that wound and put them back together. And if they need to reach out to someone on staff here, I know without a doubt 100% that that man to my, my right will be more than willing to wrap his arms around anyone and walk them through that pain. And for the brothers in this place that have been harassed or in their minds and forced or paid for or manipulated one, I pray for them. And Father, I thank you that there's no sin more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you're not poor in kindness, but you're rich in kindness. And I pray wherever we are that we would find that kindness lavished upon us today because we are again gathering near to you in need of your grace. Lord, I pray right now that for the people in this room that they would be marked by compassion and grace and love and that shaking our fist in darkness just for the sake of truth will not work. It's not you, but rather the willingness to sacrifice, to give, to open our homes, our wallets, and our time would be the mark of our lives. And Lord, I close thanking you for the radical, crazy kind of love that pursued me and chased me and heals me. Your love is steadfast, and it's the same for every person in this room. It's never ending. It never stops. It's ever pursuing, and it's crazy to think that you set your love on us, and you set it on us before the foundation of the world. We praise you this morning that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I ask in these moments that you would minister to hearts right now. That you would just truly minister through your spirit to hearts in this room. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. 
Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, Go in peace. God's blessing on you. And have a fabulous, wonderful day.